You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. What you just saw uh, come down on the uh, screen is a painting by Diego Velasquez. Uh, he painted it in his uh, late teens or early 20s, uh, in the early 1600s. Uh, the, the title of the, the painting is uh, The Moorish uh, Serving Girl or Kitchen Maid, uh, and in parentheses, Supper at Emmaus. Uh, it, it depicts uh, the story of, of the text that I'm going to be reading today, because in the same way that George's sermon last week talked about Mary Magdalene and her, her coming to grips with uh, the, the fact of the resurrection somewhat slowly, And it's only in the saying of her name that she recognized the risen Lord in front of her. In the same way, these two disciples at Emmaus uh, encounter a a very similar kind of experience. Uh, A lack of recognition at first that is uh, alleviated or their eyes are opened up when Jesus uh, breaks the bread. But what we have depicted in this particular painting is this picture of the the Moorish uh, uh, slave girl or, or kitchen maid. Uh, and if you can look in the, the upper left-hand corner of, of this frame, you see uh, some figures in the background, and one of them has a halo. Uh, should be a clue to you that something holy is going on with that person uh, and uh, in Renaissance art, and uh, it's Jesus talking to the two disciples at Emmaus. But what is interesting about this painting is that the figure that Velasquez choose to, chose to, to focus on is this Moorish uh, slave girl who is somehow with the turn of her head and her ear cocked slightly back is getting it long before those two disciples at the table are getting it. And in Velasquez's world, a Moorish serving girl was very much the outsider in in Renaissance Spain, Uh, North African, uh, probably Muslim. But this North African Muslim is getting it about Jesus before those those two disciples. It's a great picture of this gradual awareness um, that we have as we live into the resurrection where something piques our interest. And then um, we begin to to move toward that that new reality. So let's look today at Luke 24 verses 13 through 35. This is the story of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Um, Luke tells this story masterfully, and I'm going to read it all for us, uh, beginning at verse 13. Now, on that same day, two of them were going toward a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And talking with each other about all these things that had happened, while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? And they stood still, looking sad. And then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? And Jesus asked them, what things? And they replied, the things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning. And when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who had said that he was alive. 
Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. And then Jesus said to them, Oh, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. Now, as they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, because it is almost evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour, they got up and returned to Jerusalem and they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, the Lord has risen indeed and he has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he had been, been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, we look to you this day to open the eyes of our hearts, to help us to see you in all of your glory, and then to guide us by the power of your Holy Spirit to understand what it means to take up the journey of following you in this new age. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. The second paragraph of the Declaration of Independence, a little history lesson here for us this morning, says we hold these truths to be what? Self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. And among these are life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Well, that paragraph came to mind, or that sentence in the second paragraph came to mind as I was studying the text this week, especially that line about self-evident truth. And I thought about that and, and the reality of the history of that time, and you had Thomas Jefferson writing that out, and, and it was self-evident truth to him and to the colonists of that time that the way they were being treated by King George III in Parliament was, was not good. And it needed to change, and therefore they were perfectly within their rights to declare independence. Now that truth that was self-evident to Thomas Jefferson and the other signers of the Declaration of Independence, mind you, was not self-evident to King George III, was it? For him, the self-evident truth was simply that those colonists are British subjects. They are enjoying the protection of the British crown, and so they should pay taxes, and they should obey the order not to move west of the Alleghenies. It seemed perfectly obvious to him. So what was obvious to Jefferson was not obvious to King George III, and equally, what was obvious to Jefferson's slaves was not obvious to Jefferson. I would imagine those who were aware of what was going on at that time said, What's this thing about 
all men being created equal. What was self-evident to them is that they were included in that definition. It was not, however, self-evident to Mr. Jefferson. It reminds me of something John Medina uh, would say that I've heard him say more than once. Uh, I imagine it occurs somewhere in brain rules, but I haven't been able to find it. But he says, what's obvious to you is obvious to you. It's like yesterday as I was driving south on Aurora and I heard a horn honking. I stopped at a signal at 130th. I heard a horn honking. What was self-evident to the man who was honking his horn at me was not self-evident to me at that moment. When I turned around after hearing the horn and watched him go, (laughs) I understood that he was beholding a self-evident truth in his mind that I was somehow in his way, and so I tried to inch up so that he could make a left turn behind me. Self-evident truths are not always self-evident to everyone, and that's what we have depicted in our text today. We have a truth in a very prickly conversation, two different truths that are being beheld by the two parties of this, this conversation, and they're not really connecting with one another. It's a prickly conversation between Jesus and these two disciples and all are a little bit, I think, put out with the other in that the other is not getting the reality in which they are living currently. The disciples are a little incredulous that Jesus doesn't know why they're sad, that Jesus doesn't know what they're talking about as they're walking along the way. What's obvious to them they think does not seem obvious to this stranger who has joined them. Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who hasn't read the newspapers? Are you the only one who isn't aware of the most amazing thing that has happened? And we're trying to figure it out. So, of course, we're talking about this. And equally, if you look at verses 25 and 26, when Jesus Response to them, he seems to be a little bit put out at the disciples. How foolish you are, he says. How foolish you are and slow to believe. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things? It's a good question. Jesus means it as a rhetorical question. Was it not necessary? Is it not obvious? Is it not a self-evident truth that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Well, we have no immediate answer from those disciples. And maybe they are perhaps a bit unclear as to, to how to respond to Jesus at this point. After all, he's just called them fools. But it's not clear what effect... Jesus' explanation of this self-evident truth has, has had on them. They're obviously not alienated by it because they invite him to come and, and be with them and to invite him to dinner. So something has registered. But I have to believe that deep down, what Luke doesn't tell us about is the internal dialogue of each of these disciples as they chew on that word necessary. Necessary? Really? 
It's not at all clear, I suppose, that it was necessary in their minds. It's not at all clear how it fit into some grand scheme at this moment that they are walking away from Jerusalem and walking away from the source of their grief and looking sad. It's not at all clear to them that it was necessary that the Messiah should suffer. And I don't imagine that the explanation that Jesus offered them and his chapter and verse summary of the text did a whole lot to change their minds in the moment. I imagine it didn't do much to mitigate their sadness at having lost the one whom they followed, but also having lost the expectation of what they had hoped would happen. I think it's a great metaphor for something that is common to all of us at some point in our journeys of faith. At some point... We are like these disciples who are walking away from Jerusalem, walking away from the proclamation of some new good news, looking sad because we're not sure that news is for us or what it means or how it fits. There isn't a week in my life as a pastor that I do not encounter someone who is disappointed with God whose expectations about who God is and what God ought to do have somehow been violated and who therefore leave this sanctuary, leave this place of the Jerusalem proclamation looking sad. Because that disappointment with God is that expression we had hoped. We had hoped something different than what has actually happened would happen. And like these disciples needing Jesus to be the way they needed him to be, so do we have that experience. And in the face of this violation of our expectations about God, in the face of this pain, none of us are tuned in well enough to really hear the answer in that rhetorical question, was it not necessary? I suppose some of us can capture the, the, the cognitive progress of, of, of the argument that Jesus is making at that point. But it's, it's hard to take in self-evident truth when that truth seems to be in violation of what you know to be self-evident. I mean, how many of us can really hear Romans 8:28 about all things working together for good for those who love God in the face of having just buried our spouse or kid or after turning off a report about Haiti or after receiving a diagnosis that we didn't want? How many of us understand effectively at that point how that might fit into something that we would label good? It's not clear how it all fits sometimes. And so we feel a bit taken at that point. We feel a bit ripped off in our relationship with God. It's as if we say, you know, I followed you, Jesus. You promised salvation. You promised abundant life. I followed you because I believed that that was to be the case. And I'm having a hard time figuring out how this fits into that promise. 
I'm having a hard time trying to understand what it means to be a part of this reality that you're talking about because my reality seems very different at this moment. I took you as my Savior, but now I feel a little taken by you and I wonder where you're taking me. It's like the line in Psalm 73, which is uh, a great psalm of, of envy, where the psalmist looks around at the world and says, you know, it's the evil people that are winning out, Lord. Why is that? It's the people who don't follow you and don't, don't obey you that seem to be getting all the goodies. Why is that? Halfway through the psalm, he says, all in vain have I kept my heart pure. That's what it feels like to come to this point where our expectations have been violated. All in vain. It's not clear to me, Lord, how this fits. But what I love about the story of the disciples on the way to Emmaus is that we don't really see them staying in that place. We see them apprehending a truth and beginning to get a handle on something that they hadn't yet gotten a handle on. Because something happens to move them to a new place. Something bigger than their expectation takes place and it transfers them out of the dominion of darkness, as Paul says, and into the kingdom of God's beloved son. What happens between we had hoped and the Lord is risen indeed is that they first of all invite him to stay with them. He said enough to them that has piqued their interest. And so they say, you know, the day is coming to an end. Why don't you join us? Why don't you come on in and have dinner with us? We're nearing our destination. And they have to take the initiative to do that because Jesus himself is walking on. After his brief sermon, I think he, he walks on assuming that he's not going to be invited to stay. And yet he's invited to stay. So whatever he said had enough of an impact to pique their interest and to invite him to into their space, to be a part of what they were doing. And then he breaks the bread. And it's in the breaking of the bread that what was fuzzy becomes clear. It's in the breaking of the bread that that awareness pictured by this kitchen maid is now also in the eyes of those two disciples. And what's interesting is that at that point, he disappears. What's with that? It's kind of like exactly what happens with Mary when Jesus says her name and suddenly he's no longer the gardener, but now he's the resurrected Lord. In that moment of awareness where she hears her name, she recognizes Jesus. But then Jesus says something very odd to her. He says, do not hold on to me, Mary. Don't grab a hold of me. For I've not yet ascended to the Father. In other words, Mary, the relationship is going to be different. The relationship is different because I'm, I'm not huggable in the same way, Mary. What's different at this moment, and James Loder has written about this, what's different in this moment is that in that moment of recognition, both Mary and these disciples begin to see Jesus for who he is. The resurrected Christ. And in that moment of recognition, he is no longer simply an object in their world. He's not their Lord to do what they want. 
in that moment a mysterious and phenomenal transformation takes place in their awareness for he's no longer an object in their world they are now citizens of his kingdom and they are participating in the reality that that he defines they're now a part of his world when we see the breaking of the bread when we hear the saying of our name out of the mouth of the risen Lord exactly what George talked about last week is what happens is that fact the fact of the resurrection moves to the truth that we behold the truth that now is self-evident to us for in that moment what we know is that though he may not fit into our conception of our reality we very much fit into and have a place in his reality because in that moment of the breaking of the bread what we know is the truth that he will feed us for eternity that we belong to him the kingdom breaks in the light dawns and we see that our lives fit into a story that is much much bigger than the one that we had planned or written ourselves Several years ago, I heard Garrison Keillor on his uh, monologue in Prairie Home Companion uh, one time telling the story of some characters in Lake Wobegon, his fictional town in Minnesota. And he was telling the story this particular day about a woman, young woman, uh, who was a philosophy professor uh, who had left Lake Wobegon after to get her education and then gotten a Ph.D. in philosophy and was now teaching at one of the state colleges in Minnesota. Her name was Corinne Inkfist. And Corinne Inkvist's father was the, the president of the, the um, Lake Wobegon um, First National Bank. And she was driving back to Lake Wobegon in order to, to ask him for a loan, actually, so that she could buy a house. And uh, as, as Keeler tells her story, you know, he talks about just how, how wonderful she was as a, as a philosophy teacher, how the, the words of Plato and, and Aristotle would, would just fall off of her tongue and, and that she would almost gloriously give witness to these philosophers to rooms full of students who heard maybe a tenth of what she had to say. Uh, and Keeler at one point says, Corinne Inkfist doesn't believe in God. But there's pretty good evidence that God believes, believes in Corinne Inkfist. That's the phrase we need to hold on to today. We like to talk about faith in terms of inviting Jesus into our hearts, and that's a great way to talk about what faith is about. Taking him as our Savior. Moving to the conviction that he is our Lord. And we, like those two disciples, do exactly this as they did when they invited him to dinner. There's something about you, Jesus, that makes me want to be with you. And so I am going to pay attention to that and give you space in my life. So stay with us and occupy that space in our home. But he always turns out to be someone who is much bigger than the one we thought we were inviting in. Because suddenly this one who we think is our guest 
actually becomes our host. And he does so in the breaking of the bread. We think that we're taking him as our savior, but more specifically, he's taking us into salvation. I heard one commentator say that what's common to our experience in the journey of faith is that very often we need to resolve the cognitive dissonance between our convictions and our experience. And that's exactly what's happening in this text and in our lives when we come to that point of having our expectations violated. We have to let go of the God of our projections in order to behold and to be held by the God who really is. Jesus is always surprising us. And we shouldn't be surprised that we're surprised. (laughs) Because everything that Jesus tells us in his ministry is in some ways a violation of people's expectations. If we go right back to the beginning of his his earthly public ministry in the baptism story, he, he comes to John the Baptist. John the Baptist has said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus yet comes to John and says, baptize me. Let me also submit to this baptism for the repentance and the forgiveness of sin. And John says, no way. You should be baptizing me. And Jesus responds, permit it for now. Permit it for now, for it will become clear how this is the fulfillment of all righteousness. It will become clear that the pain to which I submit is the pain that passes through every human heart. And I'm going to take that into me and have victory over it and take you with me into the kingdom of my father. So permit it for now. But when we're living in that tension between conviction and experience, when we're in that space where we're walking away from Jerusalem looking sad, that's the phrase I want to give us to hold on to. Jesus himself saying, permit it for now. Live into it. Let it be. Because you may see through the glass dimly in this moment. But abide with me. Abide in my space and you'll see fully and face to face one day. Let's pray. Shelter us, Lord. Keep us in your care. Teach us that we belong to you. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.